we're in a series of lessons that I've entitled Lessons from the Fathers. And my goal is to teach Scripture, as always, but to frame it around uh, some of the great heroes of, of our legacy that, that you may not know about. We started two weeks ago with Clement of Rome and talked about his uh, commitment to the church, and, and, and I taught accordingly. Um, he talked about divisions in the church, and, and, and so we talked about those things. Last week was Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius was a, a contemporary of Clement, but when it came to church government, they had very different views. And uh, that's, that's interesting to me because people often, uh, for whatever, whatever doctrine they're, they're talking about, they will often appeal to the church fathers and they'll say, well, you know, the, the church fathers were amillennialists, so that's what we should be. Or the church fathers were, were dispensationalists, so that's what we should be. Or the church fathers believed in a plurality of elders, so that's what we should do. Here's the thing about the church fathers. They settled the great foundational doctrines of the faith. But below that line of what we sometimes call secondary doctrines, but they're not really secondary, they're, they're, uh, they're complementary doctrines, there was as much variety of positions in the ancient church as there is today. So we have to be careful about digging our heels in uh, for anything except the core that, that defines the gospel. There are certain doctrines that are non-negotiables for us. But other things, we come to our, our, our convictions, we come to our conclusions, and we practice, uh, we practice our faith knowing that we can find somebody to point to as a precedent, but, but we want to be real careful about uh, about knowing where that line is so that we can distinguish those non-negotiable ar articles of faith versus others that we can allow uh, charity in our disagreements. Tonight I want to look at, uh, at a, a church father by the name of Justin Martyr. Now it's interesting even to call Justin a church father because he never, unlike the others that we've looked at and will look at, he never led a church. He was never a bishop or an elder. He, was, he, never, he never held any uh, formal position. He was a churchman in the sense that he was deeply devoted to the church, but he was never actually a church leader. He was a philosopher. If you ever saw a movie called October Sky, it's the story of a kid that grew up in rural West Virginia and just to say that is almost redundant, rural West Virginia. His name was Homer Hickam. And the movie shows Homer and some friends, uh, as a hobby, they, they would blow up missiles. They were always trying to set off rockets, and they were fascinated by those things. Homer Hickam went on to become uh, a NASA engineer. But he had uh, the most humble origins. I mean, the unexpected place that a great uh, astrophysics engineer that, 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 that he could come from, from the backwoods of West Virginia is, is kind of a, 
a typical American story. Justin Martyr is similar to that story in this way. We've seen Clement and we've seen Ignatius, uh, men who were highly educated, that had great advantages in life. Justin was born to a, a, a Greek family who lived in Palestine. Now, we know Palestine, in the Bible it's referred to as Judea. Jerusalem is the center of the universe as far as the, the, the plan of God is concerned. But humanly speaking, that part of the world has always been pretty much wrapped in obscurity. In the generation following the apostles, really, Justin was born on the cusp of the second century. Uh, We don't know exactly, but it seems like he was probably born right about the year 100. So you've got that first generation that followed the apostles, men like Clement and Ignatius. Ignatius was a disciple of John. Clement was a disciple of Peter. Uh, Justin is in that next generation, so to speak. But coming from Palestine, from Judea, um, he didn't have any real educational advantages. He just had one thing, really kind of the same thing that Homer Hickam had. He had a hunger to learn. Unusual for his background, he decided that he wanted to, to he, loved, he loved the idea of philosophy. And when he had the opportunity to read, he would read the philosophers of, of the ancient world the early Greek philosophers in particular. And as he grew, he decided that he wanted to be a philosopher. So the way you did schooling back then, there weren't universities that you could go to and enroll in. You found a teacher in a particular uh, philosophy or vein of teaching, and you attached yourself to that teacher. You became a disciple of that teacher. Well, Justin, in his educational endeavors, Uh, he began the process of finding uh, a philosopher who could teach him. He was drawn to a philosophy that was very prominent at the end of the first century and the the first part of the second century, a philosophy called Stoicism. And so he found a Stoic philosopher and attached himself there, expecting his intentions were clear. Uh, As he put it, he wanted to Uh, He wanted to progress in the knowledge of God. So he studied, he followed this philosopher for a while, he studied Stoic thought, and realized one day that he wasn't any closer to knowing about God than when he'd started. So he boldly asked his teacher, uh, when will we learn about God? To which his teacher responded, that knowledge is not necessary to a fulfilling life. Deeply disappointed, Justin abandoned the teacher. He thought, well, if Stoicism is not interested in the search for God that, that's, that captures me, uh, maybe the, the followers of Aristotle will do better. He found a teacher who was an Aristotelian, and he said, I fancied that he was shrewd in philosophical matters, so he followed him. A few days passed, he wasn't there very long, and the philosopher pressed Justin for a fee. 
This is what you have to pay in order to be a follower of mine. Justin said he's no philosopher at all because he's not concerned about the mysteries of the universe. He's only concerned about his fee. And so he abandoned his Aristotelian professor. He then moved to a follower of Pythagoras. You've, in high school, you learned the Pythagorean theorem, part of geometry, I believe, maybe algebra, I don't remember. He was put off because as he followed this school of Pythagoras, his teacher instructed him that he was years away from contemplating the philosophical idea of God, that what was necessary was that he must leave and he must study math and music and something else. <laughs> he gave him, what he did was he gave him prerequisites. Uh, oh, math, music, and astronomy. Study those mathematical disciplines, and when you become proficient in the language of the universe, then we can begin the conversation about God. Justin said, I don't care about math or music. I want to know about God. So he abandoned Pythagoreanism. He finally makes his way to a Platonist, a follower of Plato. He liked the, the ideas of Plato. In fact, throughout his life, argued that Plato um, actually had part of the truth. It was incomplete, but he had a grasp of the revelation that God was making to the world. And so he followed his Platonist professor for a time, but he says in his own um, account of his own conversion, he said, I overestimated my progress, expecting that any day I would be able to look upon the face of God so disappointed in the lack of progress towards the only goal he really, really cared about, he went for a walk on the beach where he met an old man by the sea who in conversation suggested to Justin that maybe he should consider the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, in that they predated many of the philosophers, and maybe he would find what he wanted there. Justin said he was so impressed by the thoughtfulness of this man, and as they talked, he had already been impressed by the fearless way that he had seen Christians face martyrdom. Now remember, born in the year 100, he would have been very young in the first wave of Christian persecution that, that, that came in the late 90s into the, into the early teens of the second century. As a young boy, he would have been, I say first wave, I mean the first wave after the apostolic period. The first wave was under Nero. But about the turn of the second century, there was another wave of persecution. Justin would have observed that, and like so many others of his day and time, he was impressed by the way that Christians... Um, lived their philosophy, their belief system all the way to death. Studying the Hebrew prophets, Justin became a Christian. And he said this, this is a quote, this philosophy alone is the safe and profitable place for my mind. 
Thus, and for this reason, I am a philosopher. Now, you might say if, if Justin wasn't really a churchman, and he wasn't a theologian in the classic sense that he contributed to the theological development of, of orthodoxy, then why would we consider him uh, one of the great church fathers? He was a philosopher, but Justin's particular contribution was significant in this. As a philosopher, he took to himself the task of defending Christianity in the face of Roman opposition, particularly in three areas. He defended Christianity by, uh, by regularly arguing um, for, the, um, for the good life that Christians lived. In other words, he put their behavior on display as evidence of the rightness of their belief system. Um, his goal was, I think, to do away with the public relations myths that surrounded second century Christianity. Christians were often accused of being atheists. We've talked about this before. Charged with being atheists, not because they didn't believe in any god, but because they wouldn't accept the pantheon of Roman gods. So atheism was a common charge. Um, Justin is effective in arguing, like a philosopher would, that while Christians don't believe in the pantheon of Roman gods, they do believe in the God behind the gods, in a sense. He would argue, argue philosophically that they believe in, in the original God, the creator God, and he was very effective in making his arguments. But he would also, he also put on display... Um, not just their character, but their worship practices. Part of, part of Justin's real contribution to us is he wrote in language that was not meant for Christians because he was defending Christian practice to pagans. And so he didn't use any technical language. He, he probably, he, he didn't use what we today would call Christianese he describes the way Christians practice their faith, and he did it in a way that, that the unbelievers could comprehend, could understand. One of the typical charges against Christians in, in the ancient church was not only atheism, but often they were persecuted for practicing cannibalism. They were charged with cannibalism because it was a misunderstanding of the language that they would use because they would speak about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. Well, we understand it was the Eucharist or, or what we call the Lord's Supper, but to the pagan ears, to, to people coming out of mystery religions where that kind of thing could actually happen, they often accused Christians of cannibalism. Because they greeted each other as family and referred to each other as brothers and sisters and yet greeted each other when they met together with a holy kiss, sometimes they were accused of incest. You see, these are all misunderstandings and they're relatively easy to explain, but to a culture that, that thought they knew what, they, what the words meant... Christians were bizarre, incestuous, cannibalistic atheists. 
we've got to get rid of these people. And yet, people who actually knew Christians were regularly astonished at the charges because their experience was that Christians were the mildest, the, the gentlest, the kindest, the, the most self-sacrificing on behalf of others of anybody they knew. Justin was very gifted at explaining Christian practices in a way to disarm those false accusations and painting the picture of the daily lifestyle of believers in a way that made it attractive. Let me give you an example. Uh, I'll talk about his, his, the three writings that we have from him in, in just a minute. But, but in one of his writings um, called um, His First Apology. Now, you know, apology in the classic sense doesn't mean asking for forgiveness of something. An apology means a defense. He wrote, uh, he wrote two apologetic works. Uh, his first apology was um, a document addressed to the emperor outlining Christian theology and practice and the behavior of Christians. Then his second apology was a supplemental work that came along later, which he addressed to the Roman Senate, both in, in designed to, uh, to gain a hearing so that Christianity could be seen for what it really was and not for this uh, uh, caricature that was so common in the Roman Empire. But this is the kind of language he used, speaking in his first apology, using plain speech that, um, that non-Christians could understand. Uh, I've just got a couple of uh, quotes here. He says, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. Now, a couple of things before I read past that first sentence. I love that phrase, the memoirs of the apostles. Memoir is a word that comes from our word memory. He says we read from the recollections of the apostles. What's he talking about? He's talking about the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what's fascinating is it's the fourth century. It's after the Council of Nicaea in 325 before a formal canon of Scripture has been finalized where the church fathers come together and say, these are the documents that are universally recognized as inspired. Here's the list. This is 200 years or more before that. And Justin's writing lets us know that within a generation of the disciples, the four Gospels were already in wide circulation and use among the churches. He says we, 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 we read from the memoirs of the apostles or from the writings of the prophets. Those are Old Testament passages. He says, we read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs. Now, when he uses the term president, he's speaking language that non-Christians can understand because what he's describing here is the lead teacher, the shepherd, the pastor. But he uses the term president, and he often refers to the president of the congregation because that's language that non-Christian Romans would be able to understand. He says, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things that they've just read. In other words, he preaches a sermon out of the, out of the text that they've just shared. 
Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayers, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent saying, amen. And there is a distribution to each one and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. In other words, people who can't be there when they share the Lord's Supper, the deacons take it to their homes and share the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. Let's see. Um, And those who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit, and what is collected is deposited with the president. He ministers to the orphans and widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want and those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us and in a word takes care of all who are in need. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead." I find that interesting. What he's describing here is a Sunday worship experience that's not dramatically different from what we do 2,000 years later. And yet, I love at the end, he says, because the church was already not worshiping on the Jewish Sabbath, he justifies worship on Sunday as not only the day that our Lord was resurrected, but he goes all the way back to the beginning If Sunday was the first day of the week, he says that was the day God, into the darkness, spoke light into existence and began to shape all that is. I find that a fascinating justification for uh, for worship moving to Sunday. Uh, The Gospels were read in the churches before the New Testament was compiled. I think that's important. And there was biblical interpretation, there was prayer, there was Lord's Supper, and there was uh, caring for the needy. The church is not dramatically different than that, these 2,000 years, which is a good thing. In fact, where do we have problems in our generation? In churches that have abandoned these very core values. Well, Justin stood in the gap to defend Christianity. Let me read a couple of more quotes because I I love his writings. At one point, he describes the lives of Christians in this way. Again, remember, he's trying to make the case that Christians don't need to be persecuted. Uh, They're they're the exact kind of neighbors you want to have. In his first apology, he says this, those who once rejoiced in fornication now delight in continence alone or purity. Those who made use of magic arts have dedicated themselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who once took most pleasure in the means of increasing our wealth and property now bring what we have into common fund and share with everybody in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs, now, after the manifestation of Christ, we live together and pray for our enemies." He makes the case that there's something radically different. We're not just, we haven't just turned over a new leaf. We haven't just improved ourselves. We're fundamentally transformed from who we used to be. Folks, in every generation for 2,000 years, the best testimony of the church is the changed lives of people. 
I talked to a, uh, I heard the testimony of a, of a lady uh, some years ago, and she was telling me about, about visiting a church for the first time. She'd grown up Jewish. She'd never been in a Christian church. Uh, really, it was uh, because she was homeschooling her, her kids and thought that they ought to be, at least be exposed to Christianity because it's kind of the American thing. So they went to church, and she said, I was completely put off. She said, there was a man who lived in our country club neighborhood who was a horrible man. He played golf all the time, and you could hear him for 100 yards in every direction, cursing and spewing and spitting and throwing clubs. And He was a terrible person. And she said, we went to that church, and he stood up, of all people, stood up that day, and with tears streaming down his face, talked about how he'd met Jesus and how his life was different. And she said, I sat there going, oh, sure, what is this? I know this guy. She said, how shocked was I when I ran into him again and again and again after that and began to realize that the man that I had seen in the church that day really was different than the man I had known before. And she said, I never would have known why, except I was there. I heard his explanation of his change before I ever saw the change. And when I realized that he was a different man and what made him different, she said, I got to find out about this because this is, this is not ordinary. You see, the best testimony the church has ever had is the lives of transformed people. Oh, by the way, that works in both directions. What compromises the reputation of the church more than anything else are Christians who don't look anything at all like Jesus. The whole world is watching. And the reputation of Jesus himself is at stake. That's why transformation is so critical. Well, one of the things that the emperors were concerned about was that Christians were not loyal because they wouldn't swear to Caesar, because they wouldn't worship Caesar's gods. Uh, they were afraid that Christians were seditious, that they weren't trustworthy, they weren't loyal citizens. One of the things that Justin taught was, in fact, that our, our very core as, of our faith teaches us that we should be the best of citizens. This is what he says again in the first apology. He says, more even than others, we try to pay the taxes and assessments to those whom you appoint, he's writing to Caesar, as we have been taught by Jesus. For once in his time, some came to him and asked whether it was right to pay taxes to Caesar. And he answered, tell me whose image is on the coin. And they said to him, Caesar's. And he answered them again, then give what is Caesar's to Caesar and what is God's to God. So we worship God only, but in other matters, we gladly serve you. Well, Justin was, uh, was effective. Um, I've got other quotes here, uh, but I, I don't want to overdo it. He was such, a, it was such an effective writer because he was not a theologian. As a philosopher, he spoke the language of the day. Um, he was not a, a, he was not a Greek who who came to Christianity and then threw out all the Greek philosophy that he had learned. He was a Greek who had come to see Christianity as the fulfillment of all that was best in philosophy. He believed that uh, that Plato 
uh, was a Christian in the general sense that he communicated that portion of the truth that he could understand. It's what we call natural revelation. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that that creation gives testimony of the, the characteristics of God. Justin argued that men like Plato, men like Socrates, Socrates also was charged with atheism because in his day, he also didn't believe in the whole uh, Greek pantheon of God, Zeus and, and all the others. He was charged with atheism as well. Justin's argument was these men uh, had an incomplete understanding, but what they could draw from, from creation, they had drawn. And they, they knew more than the, the, the generation around them. And he said, what, what we have in Christianity, these men have been influenced by the word. The word has made evidence in nature. But then God spoke finally and once for all in the word who became flesh. He said, we don't have to throw out the philosophers. We take their insights partial and incomplete though they may be, and we bring them in and we correct them and we flesh them out so that we have a a broader understanding of what is true. What it did in his generation was it made him able uh, to communicate in his day. I mentioned three writings. His first apology was a defense of the Christian faith addressed to the emperor The second apology was a shorter supplement, uh, as I said, which he addressed to the Roman Senate. And then uh, there was a third work that that has survived called Dialogue with Trypho, T-R-Y-P-H-O. Trypho, uh, this is the record of a long and very polite debate between Justin as a Christian and Trypho, who was a Jew. Uh, It took place in Ephesus. you know that, um, that the Jews were really scattered after the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Well, fast forward almost uh, two generations. In about 135 A.D., there was um, such part of, the, part of the Roman persecution of Christians was because of Jewish hostility toward Christianity. Originally, Christianity sort of was believed by the Romans to be a subsect of Judaism, and so it had the same special privileges that that the Romans allowed the Jews. By the 130s, um, the Jews had made it abundantly clear that Christians were no part of Judaism. And so they pressured Rome, and Rome began to ramp up the persecution of Christians. In the Troubles... Uh, uh, about 135, uh, you have this debate in Ephesus between Trypho the Jew and Justin. Um, It's remarkably pointed. In fact, we would say almost rude at times. And yet, their arguments were offered with with such respect for one another that um, I don't have the quote here with me, but... uh, but as I, as I read that document, at the, end of, at the end of the debate, the debate lasted for two days. At the end of the debate, Trypho says, I wish we could continue this, 
I know that, that you have to leave and, and we're, we're traveling. And, and, and I hope that if we ever cross paths again, uh, we will view each other as friends. Now, that's pretty remarkable. We can't imagine in 2022 theological debate that ends with everybody going out to have dinner together at the end of the debate. Because, you know, if you disagree with me, you hate me. And that's the way we, that's the way we process differences. They, they had fundamental differences. Justin trying to make the case that Jesus was the Messiah, that the Jews should, should recognize this one who fulfilled all the Old Testament prophets, with Trypho the Jew arguing that, uh, that Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah for several reasons, not the least of which was that he died on a cross, and everybody knows the Old Testament says cursed is the one who dies on a tree. The Messiah couldn't possibly die that way. It's unthinkable. It's a masterful debate, and nobody really wins in the end. I mean, nobody changes positions, but it's a, a great example of the kinds of things that, uh, that happened in the ancient world. He defends Christianity, and I, I've, I've selected a passage that was particularly important um, to Justin. Um, and the passage is from the third chapter of Colossians. You'll see why as I read it, because in the third chapter of Colossians, Paul is making the case that Christians are a fundamentally different kind of people. They're not improved. They're not, um, they haven't turned over a new leaf. They're, they're not uh, better. They're transformed. And it's because, first of all, they have a new nature in Christ. These are verses that Justin used in in his apology and and i want us to review them colossians chapter 3 the first four verses therefore the therefore is there because you know in paul's writings the first half of his letters are almost always his theological foundation the last half of his letters are almost always uh the practical application well that's what he does here the first two chapters of colossians are theology the last two chapters of colossians are our practical application. So in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, therefore, meaning because of everything I've said theologically in the first two chapters, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He says you have a new nature. You've been raised with Christ. This was a past event. It was something that had already happened in their life. But that past event has an ongoing implication in that you are now permanently identified with Jesus. Therefore, if you are a Christian... If you've been crucified with Christ and raised with him, you should be preoccupied with the priorities that he was preoccupied with. Heavenly citizenship means we have to constantly remind ourselves this is not our home. There's a new focus that's inspired by the reality that Christ has authority over everything. 
That's what he spent chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians explaining. Christ is above all. He's superior to all things. And we've been raised with him, which means we're, we're operating from his perspective. We see the world the way he sees it. He says in verse 3, You've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is an awesome verse. He says, you've died, meaning who you used to be is gone. You've been raised with Christ, so you're a new creature. You're different. You're, you have the same name. You, you may, in general, look the same. But to the core of your soul, you're fundamentally different. But here we're back to what we talked about last Sunday. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 10 talking about how no one can snatch you from my hands. I, you're in the hands of, of Jesus and, and then we're in the hands of the Father. He, Paul, Paul is using that kind of double uh, assurance in this verse the same way that John used it in the gospel. Paul said, uh, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, doubly secure. It's like you've been locked in a safe and the safe has been locked in a bank. You have secret resources. As a Christian, you've been hidden in Christ and you have access to resources to live this new life. Access that you never had before and frankly, resources that the world around us does not understand. In Philippians, why did Paul say, uh, may you have the peace that passes understanding. One of the most common reasons I think that people go through difficulties is because when we go through difficulties and God makes himself evident to us by giving us a peace, man, people notice that and they don't get it. It's a peace that passes understanding. It's a piece they can't understand because it doesn't make any sense to them. Lose your job? It's okay. God's got this. Diagnosis of cancer? I'm not happy about it, but God's got this. Persecution in any generation of the church. It's this ability to access spiritual resources that we didn't have until we met Jesus. I, I've often said, I've preached a lot of funerals over the 30 years that I've been a pastor. I've preached a number of funerals for people who are, were not Christians, from families who are not Christians. And I'm telling you, if you don't have any other evidence of the legitimacy of Christianity. If you'd go to 50 funerals for a believer from a believing family, and you'd go to 50 funerals for an unbeliever from an unbelieving family, the way we face death alone would convince you that Christianity is true. Because there is a radical difference. It's not just a little bit, it's not just these, this group handles it a little better than this group. It is night and day. This is the kind of thing that, that Paul was saying that, that Justin would often use. You have a, a, new nature, a, a new nature. 
uh, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There's the past tense, you were raised with Christ. There's the present tense, set your minds on the things that are above with Christ, where he is. And there's the future tense, you're going to be revealed in glory with him. Man, the secret of our transformation will one day be out. (laughs) The secret will be revealed and the verdicts. This is a quote from Justin. Someday the verdicts of eternity will reverse the verdicts of time. The world thinks we are crazy. But one of these days, it'll be clear what was true after all. Well, this new nature plays out in a new pattern of behavior. And think about that. If there's a fundamental transformation in who we are, then absolutely that should be seen in some real practical ways. Salvation is not just a hidden internal change. It's a change in the very way that we live our lives. Uh, Look beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, Therefore, treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Let me talk about that verse real quickly. Well, let me read all these verses because I want you to see the pattern. Watch these, as I'm reading it, watch how he, he, he takes us from the external to the internal. All right? He, he said, let me, let me read it again. Treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. All external behaviors. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also Rid yourselves of all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene speech from your mouth. Except for the obscene speech, those are all internal attitudes. Verse 9, do not lie to one another since you stripped off the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. It's interesting, he uses two images here about this change that happens in us. In verse 5, he says, treat, treat your old body as dead. It's the idea of crucifixion. Jesus was crucified, he died, but he came back with a new life. That's what the new birth is for us. We die to our old selves and we come back, we're transformed with a new life. So there's the image of death being producing new life but then in in verse um in verse 9 and 10 he says since you stripped off the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self he changes the image to uh to taking off uh clothing and changing them for a new set of clothes paul is talking about sexual immorality impurity lust all those things evil desires uh he says you're dead to those things Don't let them characterize who you are because you're not that person anymore. But then I love this. He said, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why would greed be equated with idolatry? Well, think about it. In greed, 
you are claiming something that uh, you're claiming a desire to have more than you have. Greed is the attitude that assumes that everything in existence is here for my benefit. That's why I want it. It's mine. To act as if everything exists for us is to put ourselves in the place of God himself, which is essentially idolatry. That's fascinating. He says, don't be a part of, don't, don't let anger or rage or malice or slander or filthy language, don't let those things characterize you. It's no longer who you are. There's always a confusion. When people come and, and they'll say, man, I, I just, I don't have any assurance of my salvation. I'm just concerned. My first question is usually, okay. Well, tell me why you think you're a Christian. I mean, what is it in your mind that, that makes you think you're a Christian? Let's, let's talk about that. And then my second question is, okay, now tell me how you behave right now. I mean, are you practicing Christian disciplines? Are you faithful to be in God's Word? Are you praying? Are you sharing your faith? Are you in church? Are you sharing community with other believers? Or... Have you slacked off on all of that? Are you practicing sin? Do you have habitual sin that, 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 that you're caught up in that, that, you, that you can't get away from? And what I find often is that, wait, wait for it, here's the insight. When we don't act Christian, we don't feel Christian. And we say, I just, I just don't feel very secure in my faith. Okay. Well, number one, you're secure in your faith because you're in the hands of Jesus, in the hands of the Father, <laughs> if you ever were. So we have to decide, are you living an ungodly life and you're convicted because the Spirit is disciplining, disciplining his own, or is this a conviction that says you're on the outside looking in and you're really not saved? I mean, you have to walk through this process because here's the thing. The internal conversion, I don't even really like that word, the internal change that comes with meeting Jesus is played out in the practical reality of living and acting like Jesus in the day-to-day -day world. That's why James tells us that faith without works is dead. He's not saying you can't be saved without works. He's saying if you don't have any works to show, what makes you think you have faith? Well, I, I prayed when I was seven years old. Great. Is there anything since then? You know the Bible gives us in 1 John at least 10 evidences of salvation and not one of them is, did you pray when you were seven years old? I don't care if you prayed when you were seven years old. If you can't show me evidence of the Spirit of God at work in your life recently, then we need to talk. We need to explore that. Because the Bible is very clear. 
We've been transformed, and who we used to be is not who we are now. In fact, we need to be determined not to let any taint of who we used to be be put on display in who we are now. Because we are in Christ Jesus. See, there's a new standard. It's in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. What does that mean? It means one of the marks of being in Christ is that our relationship with other humans is fundamentally impacted. I mean, he says there are no national distinctions. This is, this is where he says there, there's no Jew and there's no Gentile. This equates in our day to uh, really nationalistic prejudices. We might put it in terms of immigrants and citizens. Now, you can have a political opinion on the way the immigration process needs to take place in 21st century America. But don't confuse your political opinions about the immigration process with the idea that those people are somehow less than you. Those people need Jesus just as much as you did. And frankly, um, it's ungodly for Christians to talk in terms of us versus them about anybody. Because Paul tells us in Corinthians that those idolaters, those fornicators, those homosexuals, those he has a long laundry list of the sin that was going on in the city of Corinth. And then he says the most disturbing thing. He says, and such were some of you. You see, we've been forgiven. We've been transformed. But we must never forget what it felt like to be outside the family of God. He says there's no, there, there are no Jews or, or Greeks. There are no Jews or Gentiles. There's no national distinctions. He says, uh, he says there's no uh, circumcised and uncircumcised. In other words, there's no religious distinctions. There's no denominationalism. In other words, if we rely on ritual to define our relationship with God, we will create some sort of prejudicial superiority. Well, Baptists don't have their act all together, but at least we're not Methodists. Let me tell you, the first part of that statement is wrong because Baptists don't have their stuff together. And the fact of the matter is, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Catholic, you don't get to heaven because you've got a membership card in a particular church. You get to heaven because Jesus says, I know you. We have to remember that. We don't create artificial barriers. There are pastors in, in this city that have asked me, how do you pastor Evergreen? I mean, you've got Lutherans, former Lutherans. You've got, you've got Charismatics and Pentecostals and former Catholics. You've got Presbyterians and Methodists. You've got 
Quakers, do you know we have Quakers here? We've got people from every kind of background you can think of, every kind of theological tradition you can imagine. How do you pastor a church like that? I said, well, here's the deal. We know what doctrines are non-negotiable. And the rest of the doctrines, we're, we're okay that we don't have to see eye to eye on every last jot and tittle. But here's the most important part. You know what we have in common, no matter where we came from? We have a hunger for truth. And we are here because God has made his word prominent here. And that's what binds us. That's what keeps us as a single people. There are no religious distinctions. He says there are no uh, cultural divisions. He goes on and says there, there, there are no barbarians or Scythians. In other words... It doesn't matter that people are different from us. This would be an example of when educated people might look down on uneducated people. And I've seen it work the other direction. Uneducated people uh, look down on educated people. Well, they're snooty. They, they don't like us. You know what? The enemy does that. He wants educated people to think that uneducated people don't like them. And he wants the uneducated people to think that the educated people are looking down on them. The fact of the matter is, it is what it is. The ground is level at the cross. You don't get into heaven because you have a certain church membership card. You also don't get to heaven because you have certain diplomas on your wall. It's not the educated versus the uneducated. It's not the blue collar versus the white collar. He says there's no slave or free. There's no caste standings. There's no socioeconomic divisions. I had a pastor tell me one time, he said, he said, we, uh, we really try and reach, uh, reach the wealthy because they, they're hard to reach. <laughs> wow, how'd you get that job? Let me tell you something. The reason the wealthy are hard to reach is because they don't think they need anything. The reason the poor are hard to reach is because they don't think there are any answers that can, that can satisfy their needs. Bottom line is, Jesus is Jesus to everybody. Let's, try, let's go back 1,900 years. And here's Justin saying, we're not atheists. We have a unshakable belief in our God we're not cannibals <laughs> this is a ritual that that you don't understand and he was careful in non-church language to explain about the Lord's Supper the symbol of, of of the of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf we're not incestuous we use the term family because that's what God does. He transforms us. He makes us family. We're more family than our biological family in some cases. He taught those things so that people on the outside could begin to understand. But then he always circled around and said, okay, here's all the, those things that you need to talk about. But now let me put a Christian on display. And when you see his nature, 
and the way he lives his life, and the way he touches the lives of the people around him, and the way he helps them and ministers to them and sacrifices out of his own resources to make others uh, better off. The unshakable proof of Christianity is that we are different people and everybody who looks at us knows we're different. Well, Justin spent his final years in Rome. He was a part of that church. He defended the faith. In the 160s, the early part of the, of the decade of the 160s, he was arrested with six other Christians, put on trial for being a Christian. And I have a quote here that you, you must hear. Let me see if I can find it. Ah, here it is. Put on trial with six other Christians for being a, uh, for being a follower of Jesus. Um, commanded to renounce his faith by offering sacrifices to the gods. And this is what he said. And this is what I want us to end with tonight. This is one of the great quotes. And this is why Justin Martyr is included in our, our study. He earned the title Justin Martyr. What, what the name that has come down to us. Because with those six fellow Christians who were on trial for their lives, they were eventually uh, executed by beheading. He was told, you must disavow Christ and sacrifice to the Roman gods. And in a great mic drop moment, Justin Martyr said, no one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to the false. Listen, we're in a generation that will increasingly demand that we go along to get along. And our answer must be, no one who is rightly minded will ever change from the true to the false. Justin Martyr. We stand in the legacy that this non-churchman left us as a philosopher, but most of all, as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the example, the story of this, uh, of this uh, inspirational hero of the faith. Lord, I pray that as we work through this, that these, these lessons will be profitable to us, that, that your spirit will use both the historical and the biblical part to draw us, to strengthen us, to prepare us to face whatever comes in our own day. And that, Lord, the fathers will leave for us lessons that we will learn, that we will absorb, that we will take to heart, so that as we follow your word, we will live in the legacy, in the heritage of those who have been faithful even unto death. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.